Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 21 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So today we're going to talk about challenges in the valuation process. Let's call them valuation hurdles. Things that either are unanticipated or those things you should see in front of you, but just don't. Clearly, the valuation process is more directly applicable to sellers, but again, as always, buyers listen in because the more knowledge and understanding of how your transition might go or your future opportunity might look, the better you'll be able to navigate these conversations. So before we get going, Mr. Loretto, good morning. Well, good morning to you. How are you, Ms. Ratcliffe? I am wonderful. I thought we could start by talking about a recent hurdle that we're trying to overcome. Yes. Because we want to be kitschy like that. Yeah, I my recent hurdle is just getting out of bed. Okay, so, <laughs> so I decided Same. that, uh, of course, we've got Cole's graduation coming up. And so, you know, you got to put the fake house on. Everything is perfect. So I decided I would go to get some flowers and I filled up the truck twice. Mm. 25 flats of flowers and I don't even know how many tens of cubic feet of just fresh soil and so the up and down, the squatting, uh, the rock sand, and I decided that it would be a great idea to plant all these flowers so our house would look amazing when these family members that we haven't seen forever show up this coming weekend. I can barely move. <laughs> so I should come visit the Loretto Botanical Gardens this weekend? Oh, no. I have a beautiful yard, I, but I can't move. <laughs> the skinny little Loretto legs are on Struggle Street. <laughs> well, I'm a similar Struggle Street. It is May, the end of May. For anyone with school-aged children knows we are just battling to finish the month. Yeah. If I have to find one more theme outfit or wear your favorite color. Shoot me, shoot me. Or the lunches, you know, at the beginning of the year, you write the cute note and you have a balanced lunch. Now, I don't know if you've probably seen this meme. It's like two wrinkled oranges and a hot sauce from Taco (laughs) Bell. Like, this is your lunch. I am out. Like, let's move on. That's where we are. So just two more weeks. No more. I love you. Have a great day, sweetie. No, no. Maybe there's an old napkin in her bag that I haven't cleared out that she can use again that has that writing on it, but no more writing. Mom's done. So I used to do this funny thing is, so I'm divorced. And so the mom was like the perfect mom. So she always put the notes in the lunchbox and it said, you know, have a great Tuesday. I love you. So I would get the kids maybe on Wednesday and I would, oh my God, I would cross out the Tuesday and put Wednesday and then cross out the mom and put dad. So bad. Hey, that's effort. But I thought it was super funny. I love it. All right. We're going to talk about valuation hurdles. They're not nearly as fun as personal hurdles in my my opinion, but we've got to, we've got to cover them. So the first one that we hear a lot about and we talk about this it's actually a question on our valuation questionnaire if if a seller engages us or you engage us to do your valuation on your practice you have to check the box of whether or not you are delta premier oh don't say it delta premier versus delta ppo don't think about this until you go to transition and realize that in some areas of the country you cannot get delta premier anymore right so what that means is now let's say you are in one of the areas in the U.S., let's say California. We'll pick on California because they are probably the worst on this topic. So you can not get Delta Premier status anymore. So if I am selling my practice and I have a percentage 
small or big, of Delta Premier. My new buyer coming in cannot get that credentialing. They'll have to go with PPO, which means it's a direct hit to the top. Right. And so that is not good for valuation. Yeah. First of all, California, you'll see it a bunch. And the reason California and the insurance companies have been able to do this is because when you look at the dentist per population, it's the most saturated. And so you can find other states in the country, typically if you look at states in the South, or maybe it's like a West Virginia, and you can get some really good stats on dentographics. Again, dentographics, you're welcome, thank you. We're not receiving any uh, referral fees or kickbacks uh, from them. You're welcome. It's a great tool, though, and I, I want to emphasize it's a tool. So it's something you use on top of your own due diligence. But a lot of these southern states that don't have that same dentist-to-population ratio, you can get right in there and get that premier status. So number one is to be able to look at can you get it or not. But a high level, and again, I think it's one of the things that I love to do. Like my passion is to be able to look at these opportunities from a 30,000-foot level and be able to help determine this makes financial sense for you. And I think one of the most beautiful things is Christy may love that as well, but she's so good at the details to really drive in this to figure out what the exact number is. But at high level, I want to look at it. So I want to look to see that again, this 600,000 collection practice and you're all negative. Well, it's got Delta Premier and I don't need to be able to get that. I'm like, well, what is the number? Like drive into yeah, it. And so we, we may be $200,000 of you know doctor production that may have to take a 15% haircut. And so all of a sudden now we're $30,000 less not just from the collections, I'm talking net profit. Yep. I mean, you still got to have the same assistance. You still got to have the same dental supplies. Everything is still the same rent. Yeah. Just thirty thousand dollars is going to come off your profit. And that's if you have a hundred percent collections of right. production, right? That's and right. So, like, we really have to figure out like how big is that number, and it could be big. I mean, you could be a million dollar practice, and sixty percent of your patient base is premier. That's a big number. That's but huge. Let's, let's figure out what it is right. so that we can know, and then decide if it impacts what our value or offer price is, because. There's plenty of times where that won't change what we're willing to offer for the practice. It just gives us tools at the end. Yeah, so let me give you an example. Let's just say it's a $600,000 collection practice. I can think of a practice just north of the Santa Barbara area that I just recently helped. And this gentleman, uh, we bought this practice and it was six hundred. dollars Yeah, it had the Delta Premier status. He didn't get it, but it was a huge opportunity because the price was good. The price was like $400,000. He's only paying like 66% of collections good cash flow, and these other three doctors in the town, they were referring out a ton of procedures. So this guy's basically buying a stock, a business, and it has a huge upside. Mm -hmm. So we can really take this thing and grow it, and he's doing it. So that's what I love about it. But you can take the opposite approach to where this is a million-dollar practice, and maybe like you said, $600,000 you know, is all premier. Now all of a sudden that 15%, and now all of a sudden it's going to impact us by almost $100,000. The million-dollar practice already had a really high overhead, and it nets 300. Now, after the premiere, it's going to be almost 200. The senior doctor wants to work back. This does not make nope. financial sense. Yes, it's a great million-dollar practice. Yes, it's in California. Yes, my wife is from there. So all of the things that we talk about is finding the perfect location and practice that was on our checkbox, and we found it. But because some of these factors are now telling us that this doesn't make sense. Yeah. Again, half of this is just knowledge so that you can understand. 
I am going to be 100K less profitable or whatever that number is. How am I going to fill that gap? How am Mm -hmm. I going to get myself back there? Is it more marketing because I'm I'm going to take in those referred out procedures or I'm going to grow it in this other way because I have this other idea? It's just having the knowledge to fix it. The other thing there is on these episodes, we certainly want to encourage you to own and look this thing through. But I don't want to be the negative guy that just says, don't do it. Our job is to help and figure out a plan of basically how to make it work and show you the opportunity. It may work that you're only going to make $100,000 or $150,000 because you just don't want to work in a corporate type setting anymore. If that's the number and it's fine, you know. We do not mind being wrong. Right, right. Please prove us wrong. (laughs) Tell us you want to do something. Tell us why. And we will watch you be successful. So we'll help you do it. So second hurdle, and this is also something we're dealing with a lot right now. Yes. Fully prepaid patients in ortho. Yes. So this is a oftentimes great business practice. If I own a practice and people are willing to give me their full five, six, seven thousand dollar case up front, please write right. me your check. Yes. But in a transition, what this means, sellers, is that your buyer is buying work that you have received full payment for. And you could have two months left of that person's treatment, or you could have 24 months. Right. And so for a buyer, that is something to cause pause. And so what we have to do is figure out how that impacts value, because how these practices are valued, how especially ortho practices are valued, one, it's a seller's market, but there's also that I'm buying an existing pool of people who are going to be paying me and already committed and already have the braces on, and therefore as a buyer, I'm willing to pay more for that because it's that quote, quote, guaranteed yes. source of money. Yes. There's a lot of emotion surrounding this. Yes, there is. A lot. So I want you to give me, we're going to try this, a little of the seller side of why I'm not going to pay or change my value for these fully prepaids. So you want me to be old seller guy? Is yeah. It? And let me guess, you're yeah. going to be the young, cute buyer? Of course. <laughs> How this works. Okay. So I'm going to be old seller guy. Hey, listen, Christy, with your <laughs> lack of knowledge, you should come out fresh or residency. I've got 30 years of people standing in line prepaying my $6,500 fee, my full treatment fees. I've got 40% of the people who walk in my door, I give them a little bit of discount, and they're buying their braces up front. Now I've got this whole tracker. I got tax returns that show that it does a million five. I got tax returns that show that it nets 750. And the reality is all you got to do is walk in this practice and repeat, 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 repeat exactly what I am doing. I do not understand your logic with this whole prepaid thing. It makes no sense to me. Finally get somebody that can work for you and figure this out because you are so young and you just don't get it. See, so I did. And I I want to understand this. So I engaged a firm to help me called NDP. Okay. They're a national transition firm. It's really all they do. And they told me that contracts receivable should be somewhere in the 55 to 65% range. Yours are only 40. Some years they were a little bit less than that. And so what that tells me is that you have a ton of people that have fully prepaid. And that makes me so happy. But they've done that for you. They're not going to do that for me. I'm a new guy coming in. What if they stop prepaying now? Now I'm left with not only are people not prepaying me, but I'm left with your huge patient base that doesn't owe anything, and they're going to keep coming for two years, and I'm going to be working for free. And so I understand where you're coming from, and I really hope they continue to pay me, and, and that's a great business practice, but 
I can't overpay for your practice when I'm going to be doing free work for the next two years. I see a little bit where you're coming from. What can we do to solve this? Well, I don't know. I feel like we need someone to help us. What about this? And this is the crap that we deal with. All day. All day. <laughs> so this is the private calls that we have with a seller, private calls that we have with a buyer, and they're just dumping their emotions about this transition. But at the same time, the seller wants to sell, the buyer wants to buy. And so one of the cases that we dealt with here in the Dallas area is we helped a buyer buy this business on a bunch of prepaids. And again, these are typically very affluent areas. You might even see it in really underserved areas with Medicaid as well. And so it's a whole other issue with, with Medicaid. But let's just focus on our private practice, really high-end kind of clientele is typically where you would see this. And in this case, we had approximately a million five practice. It's ortho, so it was priced really high, like at a million four. And so the seller said, look, it is what it is. I got this long track record. So we represented the buyer. And what we told the seller is, I'll give you the million four. Not a problem. I'm going to have the bank put a million dollars on this deal, and then I will pay you the $400,000, but I want you to secure it yourself. And so the seller's like, fine, put money where my mouth is, and they're going to keep showing up. And so the seller secured $400,000 of the note, and essentially the buyer paid the bank the portion of the million dollars and, and basically paid the seller a portion of their four hundred. And then after two years, the bank would basically take out that loan yep. for the seller. So that's how you would overcome one of these huge obstacles. Yeah, like especially this. if you just can't see eye to eye. I mean, clearly you can reduce your price to something that is maybe not at the 95 or 100%, but maybe you're in that 80% range, depending on your level of prepaids. You can also do a reconciliation payment at close where you say, here's my fully prepaid patients. Here's kind of what I'm going to owe, you know, what they've already paid me and what I've earned from the time they've been with me. And here's what you're going to do. And let's prorate that full amount. Both of those are options too. It's just as a seller, what am I going to be able to swallow as a buyer? What risk am I willing to take on? And figuring out one of these three, or I'm sure there are other solutions out there too. I mean, that's the goal is think outside of the box to make it work for you. But keep in mind, we're not talking about partially prepaid patients. Like those exist in ortho. We're right. never going to, these are people who have paid their full fee. And oftentimes it's the ones who have a ton of treatment left, not the ones that are finishing up next month. So do you enjoy this reconciliation process? Because I know that you don't. I, you know, love every part of my oh, job. You, <laughs> every you part. should see her liar face on right now. All of them. <laughs> every phone call, oh every gosh. email, yeah. every Excel spreadsheet, yeah, every, every handwritten P&L. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Hurdle number three, high-end procedures. This is something that oftentimes we don't think about, or if, especially if you just have been cranking out the production and not really thinking about transition and something happens and you have to. High-end procedures or practices with really heavy doctor production are risky. Yes. And the value that you will get for your high-end procedure practice will be less than your normal split of hygiene and doctor or your hygiene heavy practice. Now, not to say that those things are not valuable. There are ways to pull out value and we have an entire episode planned to talk about how to pull out the value on these practices. But I think it's important to know that if I'm a doctor doing all on fours and that's my specialty or these huge cases, 
it's hard to find a buyer to take over that. And so your value is going to be less because there's more risk. Yeah. And I've helped a couple of the, the really high end cosmetic practices that are doing these higher procedures, maybe all in four cases. And I ask a really basic question like, hey, do you know where to find the buyer? Like, no. I was like, well, I do. Yeah. It's called a prosthodontist. And so now we're looking for a half percent of the population of dentistry, and we're trying to buy a process and convince them to buy a GP practice that just happens to be a high-end restorative practice. So it's going to be difficult to transition that. And so as Chrissy mentioned, we're going to do an episode just on how to transition these cosmetic practices, because there is a way, it just needs to be over time. And we'll see a lot in these practices as well, these high-end cosmetic practices, sometimes even in specialties like Perio and Pros, where maybe in December we may get them to prepay a $20,000 mm. case. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they'll prepay in December, but all of a sudden in January they're going to have this case, and maybe it's taking months. So we'll want to identify some of these specialty practices very much like our ortho to look at our prepays, especially because a lot of valuations or I should say closings happen towards that end of the year. Yeah. And remember, when we get a formal valuation, some of these things are not taken into account. They're taken into account from a risks perspective, but not from a actual what's going to happen logistically at close, right? I can have a $1.5 million formal valuation that at close, I'm still going to have to figure out work in progress and prepaids and all of that. So my net actually probably isn't going to be, even if my buyer were to offer the full 1.5, there's going to be transition adjustments and things that happen. So just keep that in mind and and know the difference between a value and a formal price and kind of what actually money changes hands at closing. I love that we look at all these details. I do too. Because you can look at your competition and there's a lot of brokers that do, you know, really, really good work, but I do feel we do a really good job of in these in the weeds and getting these details to help these buyers because they're so grateful. Like, I, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't think, think about that. And it's well, fun to be able to see what their problems are ahead of time. Yeah, well, in the sellers too. I mean, I think there's nothing worse than thinking, oh, I have this one price and this is what I'm going to get. And then at closing, you're like, oh, wait, what? Like the prepaids, what are you talking about? Like right. really trying to talk about those on the very front end and, and identifying those things. I think the less surprises in the overall process, the less emotional it is or maybe the less magnified those emotions are. Well, I had no idea that how just therapeutic that these podcasts were going to be for our senior doctors. Yeah. I mean, it really helps them with, you know, the setup. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it's it's kind of like my example, the old gray hair guys. It just, it's all about them. Yeah. But for them to see the other side of the equation, mm-hmm. I, I think it's just really eye-opening. Yeah. So the next two things kind of go together, but we'll talk about them separately. So hurdle number four, traveling specialist. So we see this a lot at general practice, especially in areas maybe where there's not as many specialists and you have someone come through and you have your perio or your oral surgeon or your orthodontist who comes in and kind of helps and sees your patients. can be super profitable for you as an owner. You get to keep those patients in-house, you get a percentage of whatever they're doing, and it can be great. But in the valuation piece of it, we cannot assume that any person's going to be able to come in and take on those procedures. So we have to include their compensation oftentimes as part of your operating expense. So that can hurt your valuation from a transition standpoint too, as a buyer, 
those people are not guaranteed to be in my transition or in my world when you're not, right? Because again, their relationship is with you. Will they like me as a new buyer? Will they stay on? Will they be as loyal? Will they be committed? And then I'm really banking on them to stay in order to have that profit that you as a seller are seeing from them. So I know that you just, you had somebody you helped on a perio. Tell yep. that story because I want to add to that. Yep. So had a perio, was moving back to hometown and found a practice. It was weirdly a Delta Premier practice too. So we were dealing with a few issues, but in this practice, it was a $2 million practice, but $500,000 of the practice was made up of this oral surgeon who came in. He was older, he was retired. He really had a good relationship with the seller. He loved what he did, but he wasn't sure if he was going to be staying on. And so the broker, thank goodness, on the other side saw this same hurdle and saw that there was a risk there. And they actually priced the practice instead of pricing at a $2 million number, they actually took out the oral surgeons collections and said, this is really a $1.5 million practice. And we're going to price it at the one, I think it ended up being like one, two number. And that's what you're going to pay for it. Now, there's so much opportunity in this practice with this oral surgeon potentially staying on for you. They did ask for some other things. They asked for higher comp for the seller and things like that. But we had to analyze the numbers based on that oral surgeon not being there and based on the comp to the seller without having that money. And so it really just allowed our buyer to see that, yes, this practice was profitable and it could have been really profitable, but let's operate on worst case scenario, which a lot of clients want to see the worst case. And I want to show you the conservative numbers, but that was really an interesting one just because there were so many pieces of it that might change and might have fluctuated. Right. So a couple of things there that when you think about that perio buying that surgeon production as well, and this could be for GPs, it could be for any of our specialties, you have to look at what the overall income centers are. So in that example, we had a, probably a small amount of perio. We had a periodontist that had doctor production, and we had our surgeon. So you've got three income centers. So you have to be able to look at, if I was to go in and I'm going to do X amount of doctor, and I'm going to keep the senior doctor there, and I've got hygiene, or i got this surgeon, I'm going to do X work, and I'm going to get X rate of return. And so then all of a sudden, we've seen scenarios where you go to work, and all you're doing is five or 600 collections in your little department. Like, that's all you're doing. And you're making 400 dollars after debt, after paying the surgeon, after paying this. You have to look at that from an opportunity and say, that's a really good deal. Yeah. Now, obviously, you got to look at the risk and figure out, okay, you can't do these surgical procedures. But in this case, for a periodontist, you should be able to do the same procedures that the surgeon's doing. I mean, yeah. the old days of pulling thirds for a periodontist and just referring that out to the surgeon, you, you typically are seeing the periodontist you know, doing that themselves as well. So that's one thought. The second thought is when we are a GP and we are purchasing these practices and it has this component of the periodontist or surgeon or whatever specialty is in there, is you have to look at this and, and to try to figure out who are these people? Who are these traveling specialists that are coming into your practice? And it's one of two scenarios. Okay, this is not somebody who's been doing this for 40 years. This is somebody who's either doing it on the very front end, so you've got somebody that's straight out of residency, they're doing this as income, that they think this is what they want to do, and then they finally get frustrated because they don't understand their why. They don't understand they're going to make typically more money as the owner. They don't understand about the tax planning, the pension planning, and just being in charge. So they're doing this. Eventually, they go set their own practice, and eventually, they're going to leave you high and dry. Then you got the other guy that is just older, that kind of sold maybe a little bit too soon, and now is maybe working back, kind of like at your example. 
The point of this is very simple. When you purchase these practices with these specialists in them, the risk factor of them leaving is high. And you need to know that. All of a sudden now, what are we going to be putting braces on people and they leave and you're not trained in that department? We're placing implants that maybe they need to continue that treatment and you don't have the capability of being there to support that. So we've got risk. So the important is just understanding what that risk is and making sure we're paying a fair price for this process. Absolutely. So another hurdle that kind of goes along with this is the passion project. Have you ever heard of a passion project that actually makes a ton of money? I have no idea what the heck you're talking about, girl. Yes, you do. No, the passion project. Oh, yes, the passion. Okay, I'll right? do it. Okay. Yeah, so, do. Yes, so yes, yes, yes. There are procedures that are done in practices that often, and I'm not going to offend anyone because there are practices that we've seen who do this well and, and make money off of these things, but more often than not, the sleep appliances, the Botox, the yes, random yes, procedures, passion, yes. we call those passions, right? That adds to your passion, not your production. Those things often aren't big profit centers or money makers for these practices. But we've definitely ran into practices where they're very proud of those things that they do. And that's what they want to do once they sell. They want to stay and do sleep dentistry. And that's fantastic. But when you start these things, you have to understand it's rare that they are going to add value or an attractability to your practice from buyers because buyers aren't there yet. They are not willing to pay for those things. So what's super attractive about sleep appliances is it seems like on the front end, it's like this low amount of work. And it's this this high return. I'm just telling you, it's not about doing right or wrong. Mm-hmm. From an accounting standpoint, I have yet to see some $2 million sleep appliance practice with a reasonable overhead even at 60%. I haven't seen one that's $1 million that's even at close to 60 You just don't see a lot of profitability. If anything, you see them struggle. I'm not saying that this is not your passion to go do that. But if you are going to do dentistry and you are looking for some type of reasonable profit margin, you have to look at the procedures and kind of the return on investment. Certainly when we're guiding a buyer and you're purchasing a practice that has that component, that sleep component is no different than ortho. That sleep component is no different than perio procedures or some sinus lift or some implants. You have to be able to look at this as delta and something to figure out this is a risk. You can't do it. Therefore, we need to look at the overall collections of practice and be able to discount that. Now, does a senior doctor want to discount that? No. No, they never, never. do. No. And so then part of their consolation prize is you get to keep them on and you get to be mentored by them for this. And that may not be your passion, may not be their passion. But I think that can also be super helpful in a transition when a seller wants to stay on and wants to keep working. The buyer doesn't have any interest in doing those things. It's like the perfect mix of stay on, do your sleep apnea, do your sleep appliances, do your ortho, like whatever the buyer doesn't do and you have a passion for it, like stay on and do that. And then we can work together. And if I develop it, I can develop it. So what's perfect there is let's say it's a million dollar practice and let's say it's got $200,000 of sleep apnea. So we've got an 800,000 collection practice essentially. And with hygiene, it's got another 200 or 600 left of doctor. You're used to doing 40,000, 50,000 of dentistry. Perfect. Right. Because that's you. Yeah. Now we have the ability to do that work, check the hygiene, keep him or her back. Let's take a look at how much we need to pay him for his procedures. 
and look at the new cash flow and say, does this make financial sense for you? Yes or no? Yes or no. We have time for one more, and I think it's an important one, and we get this a lot. So hurdle number six, not having enough data to do evaluation or to get the value that you think your practice is worth. So what do I mean there? I mean, I've owned the practice. Let's say I start up the practice and life calls me away or it's not going as well as I planned. I didn't start it in the right area. Whatever the reason, I have only been doing this for a few years and I am only at the four to 500K mark. What can my practice value for? Well, see, that's the problem. Now all of a sudden you got this 500 collection practice, either a broker gets involved and says, well, these practices are gonna sell for 80% of collections. The problem is that $500,000 new startup practice mainly net $100,000, $125,000. Now all of a sudden after we try to get a price of 400000 80% of the collections, it doesn't make sense. It's not gonna make sense to me. It's not gonna make sense to you, Christy. It's not gonna make sense to you, the buyer, uh, nor the bank. Yeah. Now, there are times that we'll still tell you to do it. I've got an example of a young lady that she'll probably, you're like, oh, I think he's giving me a shout out. So hello, uh, shout out. She's moving back to this DFW market and her husband is transferred here. And uh, I don't know what his profession is, but he's gonna make a decent amount of money. They already have a home. They've already identified. Mm-hmm. They're gonna be here. And so it's a startup practice that someone did four years ago and have no debt on the startup because I'm looking at the tax returns. So it's probably some type of deal where that owner is probably married to someone. They've got mm-hmm. good spousal income. And this was kind of a side gig. Maybe she, in this case, the owner just didn't have a big drive because they don't have five or $700,000 in debt. It just kind of stuck at this four yeah. or $500,000 collection. doesn't make much money. But they're moving back here, Christy, and this is where she wants to be. They've already got a home, and there's no other practices in this uh, competitive DFW market. Yeah. So instead of doing a startup for three fifty or four hundred, she's just going to buy this thing for maybe three hundred, and then the opportunity is for it to grow. So I'd look at this practice as more of just purchasing the assets, the finish up. Yep and getting into the location. Yeah, for sure. And I think there are times too when maybe your startup is going well and life just calls you somewhere else and it was unexpected and you have three years into it. The first two years aren't doing so great and you've invested a ton and the profitability is horrible, but the third year looks fantastic and you can see the uptick and new patients are coming in and your profitability is amazing. You have to realize that if we're going formal valuation, that is still not going to value high because you're valuing it too early. You are leaving money on the table because you're valuing it too early, and that's okay. Maybe not, but you have to accept that. And you have to know that a formal valuation isn't just looking at the last year. A formal valuation is looking at two to three years. Now, give me two or three years at that higher, better profitability, then we can drop those early years out, and now we can get you kind of a value that's probably more appropriate for what you put in there. Tell me your Tennessee guy story. Uh, Yes. So this was not a startup, but similar. Tennessee guy, graduated from dental school, popularity of Tennessee near Nashville, bought a practice, and decided he was not a Tennessee guy. And after two years of probably pouring some money into the practice, decided he was more of a South Beach guy or more of a Manhattan guy and just wanted to get out. And so started looking to sell. Well, two problems with that. He only had two years in the practice and one of them was bad and incomplete. And one, he had poured a ton of money in that he could not identify for me to say how much he had invested. So I couldn't pull it out as discretionary. So his overhead was super high, like 80% that year. And then current year is pacing great. Right. And he wants to sell for 90, 95%. 
no one's going to buy that. The risk, the proven track record of being able to see the profitability, buyers don't buy opportunity. Right. So it's like, do not a, pay for opportunity. So we looked at this this practice together. This practice was like 600000 the first year, didn't make much. And then for 18, did like a million bucks. And now this guy wants to sell for $900,000. And I just can't, in my right mind, just tell the buyer to buy this practice when I've only got one year of complete data. So, I mean, yeah, give me all of 19, show me does a million, million one, you know, I'm definitely in. Or decide life is calling you somewhere else and take the hit on your take, money exactly. and go to where you're happy. Exactly. One of the two. Exactly. So I think we're good, but I think it's important. And we're going to have another episode about valuation, kind of bigger picture. But I think the important thing is your practice can be, and this is more for sellers, your practice can be anything you want it to be. And we encourage you to build what works for you and what you love. I mean, cause you're going to be doing this for however many years, but you have to understand that sometimes the uniqueness of your practice can also present risk and can present challenges and hurdles when it's time to transition. And so to be prepared for that, search for a buyer, be knowledgeable about what you're putting out there and kind of how you can help mitigate some of that risk. Knowledge is power and these hurdles can be cleared. You just kind of have to be prepared and figure out how to clear them or figure out a way to go around them. One of the two. So well said. Remember to subscribe to Transition Talk on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify. And as always, like us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Have a great week. All right. I had fun today. Me that was, too. That was great. Me too. Have a great week, guys. Talk to you soon. See ya.